This episode is brought to you by Fully Gemstones. He started using the technique of patchwork by using offcuts of leather. For sure, he was a, a huge innovator and for me, he's an incredible inspiration for the mindset. He got some little scraps of leftover scraps of leather and sat up all night making shoes so they had shoes to wear in the church for their first communion. I mean, he was already upcycling his first pair of shoes. Welcome to If Jewels Could Talk. I'm Carol Walton, the voice of jewelry an author, broadcaster, and the woman who initiated the role of jewellery editor at magazines like Tatler and British Vogue. This is a podcast for everyone, for people who do like jewellery, for people who don't realise they like jewellery, and anyone intrigued by fascinating facts, new ideas, and forgotten histories. So please join me as I tell sparkly tales, meeting all sorts of people, delving into four centuries of jewellery culture, and investigate what's happening now. Happy New Year. You can't have failed to notice the results of climate change over the recent holiday season. For a start, there were the dangerous blizzards in Buffalo and Western New York, which was battered by a cyclone along the eastern seaboard. Temperatures soared around Europe in an unheard of weather event. It's been extreme heat across a huge area, which is, to be honest, unheard of. So we thought on Jules Could Talk that this was the perfect moment to talk about sustainability, to talk about what we should buy and what we shouldn't buy, and how to recycle and use leftover materials in fashion and jewellery. So please listen to our conversation where we can all start to do a wardrobe audit to help us be more sustainable in 2023. I'm delighted to bring together Dana Thomas, who's with me from Paris. Lovely to be here. Dana is the European Sustainability Editor of British Vogue, the host of the podcast, The Green Dream, and author of Fashionopolis, described by the Sunday Times as the must-read and definitive book of clothing and sustainability. And we're joined by Maria Sole Ferragamo. Thank you for joining us, Sole. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, she's zooming in from Milan. She's an architect and founder of Sole Studio, which has the specific mission to transform leftover materials such as leather and brass into unique wearable jewellery and design objects. Now, Dana and um, Sole have a link. Dana wrote the script for the new film Shoemaker of Dreams about Sole's grandfather, Salvatore Ferragamo, which we will discuss a little later. But they are also joined by the idea of discarded material sustainability, and that is the starting point of Sole's artistic creations. So I wanted to talk to them both about certain non-precious materials that are used in fashion and jewellery. So Dana, now you are the expert of sustainability, crowned by British Vogue. When did you first realise that this was a crisis in fashion? I don't think I ever realised it was a crisis in fashion. It was a bit like it just kept growing and growing. It's been an incremental issue that kind of got ignored for a long time. And I guess you could say we, we reached sort of this critical mass in the last two or three years. Actually, it happened about the time my book came out, though that was not my aim, because with a book, you, you're kind of guessing if you're in the zeitgeist or not. Mm -hmm. 
since you've planned so far in advance. But it just became part of the, you know, with COP, with Greta. I think Greta Thunberg did her famous speech at the UN literally the week that my book came out saying we have to stop this. Ellen MacArthur and the Ellen MacArthur Foundation championing the fashion industry's green movements and pushing for circularity and and reuse and stop throwing away and discarding fashion. And all these things started making noise about the same time as I was on my book tour and talking about it. And it just became a real subject. But I feel like it's been quietly building for the last 20 years. That's why I decided to write a book about it. The slow fashion movement dates back at least, yeah, 20 years. And it's really rooted back even when people ask me, how did you get into this? I said, you know, in my childhood as a kid growing up in the early 70s where our school teachers were all hippies, you know, they would just come out of the hippie movement and moved into education. This was part of my education since I can remember whether it was recycling, it was planting trees, the first Earth Day. But fashion seemed to sort of skate above all of this and didn't pay attention to it and was just living its best life until suddenly it started getting called out all at the same time. And so the book really is calling out some of these fabrics and materials and... And practices. And practices. Absolutely. And, it, and you, what the most important thing is that you can't divorce planet and humanity, that they are of a piece. So a lot of this is also about the backlash to globalization, which has been happening now for about 10 years, and the spotlight on sweatshops in the garment industry, because it's all of a piece. You can't pay people and treat people poorly and think that you're going to get ethically made clothes that also respect the planet. You can't solve climate unless you solve poverty. It's like it's all all linked. All linked. And Sole, most young jewellery designers can't wait to get their hands on gemstones. So what was it in your sort of eco-conscious awareness that made you think that the way forward had to be discarded materials? It was a, a combination of several aspects. First of all, I, I, I fell in love with the process of making jewellery when I was very little. I was eight or nine years old. Classical thing with beads, copper wire and a pair of tweezers. And uh, because of my family background, I used to always intern the family factors. So I learned to love and uh, respect and acknowledge leather. When I found out uh, after graduating from architecture that there was so much abandoned leather, the instinct to transform it into jewelry just came natural to me. And uh, after I used this scrap of leather to make a necklace, I started then thinking more deeply about this idea and I thought jewelry is always something that you establish a relationship, it's not just an ornament, it's to me at least something more. And I thought how beautiful to create jewelry with an alive material that grows old with you, plus it was meant to be discarded. So how beautiful it would be to upcycle it, to add value to this material by transforming it into a piece of jewellery. And this was how the idea started. And do you think that engaging with sustainability is an age thing? Do you think your sort of age group are looking for a modern sense and a modern sense of luxury is a sustainable item? I think it's a mind thing. For sure, younger, the younger generation, the youngest generation is more engaged with sustainability because it's growing up hearing about this topic so much. But I really believe that it's not a matter of age, but it's a matter of mindset, of the questions you ask and how you decide to, to live your life and, and leave a trace on, on, on this planet. Um, talking about uh, preciousness and 
and sustainability. I mean, my desire is uh, for people to be amazed because they find uh, a product that they love uh, so much and that they find beautiful and it gives them emotion. And they are amazed by the fact that uh, it's also made with the uh, discarded material. So it was made having sustainability at heart. Uh, I don't see it the other way around. Uh, also because uh, I believe that nowadays uh, it should not be given for granted, uh, but it should always be there. Whenever you, you do something, you produce something uh, or you purchase something, you have to ask the question, but you expect it to be realized or, or thought with the sustainability at the heart of it. And Dana, do you think that in fast fashion, it is the production or the consumption, this sort of insatiable volume that's required? Oh, it's definitely What, the production. It's the production rather than the volume. Well, the overproduction. Mm -hmm. Because through the overproduction and the idea of economies of scale, that it's cheaper to make 100 red sweaters than it is to make 80 red sweaters, even though we'll throw 20 of them away. Cheaper on the spreadsheet, but not actually in the big picture. These brands that are overproducing and restocking their stores with new looks every week and just pushing, pushing, pushing this constant consumption of these clothes at super low prices, they've kind of trained us, they've conditioned us to think that it's normal to go shopping and buy a new outfit for every Friday night date or to walk out of a store with a bag full of clothes. Or like I see at Primark on Oxford Street, where you walk around the store with a grocery cart. It's a dirty grocery cart that you pull around behind you and you're flinging clothes in it. So already the disrespect for the item is from the minute you pick it up and then you throw it on the counter and then it's thrown in a bag and it's all balled up. That we've just been conditioned that we're supposed to burn through this stuff like fast food. And that like fast food three hours later, we're hungry for it again. And the volume is how they make their vast amounts of money. The owners of fast fashion companies, H&M, Uniqlo, mm -hmm. Zara, yeah. are among the top 50 wealthiest people in the world. And the only other segment of business that has as many billionaires in the top 50 is tech. That That's, tells you everything. It does. You quote in the book Anna Winter saying, everyone should have fashion. Do you think that's part of the problem? that everybody wants fashion instead of wanting clothes or garments and that it's as the seasons speed up and brands do cruise and different shows throughout the year that it's this desire for fashion. I don't know. I think what Anna was saying at the time, and it seemed like the right thing, this was 20 years ago before we started thinking about what do we do with all these leftover clothes, that the idea that Karl Lagerfeld could make something that was affordable to all and not simply Chanel or Fendi that were so overpriced mm -hmm. for the 1% was terrific. When he did a collaboration with H&M. When he did the collaboration with H&M. What we weren't considering was that those clothes, many of those clothes were made of polyester that don't biodegrade. That that collection, the capsule collection wasn't overproduced. When it was sold out, it was sold out, which is great. But then H&M kept making other stuff and got you in the store for the other stuff that was overproduced. I don't think Anna thought, I don't think any of us thought the whole way through this idea of fashion for everyone at a cheap price. But it, I think that it's okay that you are producing beautiful clothes that aren't you know, marked up 25 times and making a handful of people wildly rich. There are loads of lovely sustainable fashion brands that are selling clothes for not a lot more than H&M and Zara are. Like, I'm, I'm not today, but I have a beautiful 
white cotton, crisp white cotton shirt that just has a little bit of fashion to it. You can tell it's not just a plain old Oxford shirt. And it's organic cotton. I think I paid 120 pounds for it, but it'll last so much longer than the 70 pound version of it that I would have bought at H&M or Zara. It'll last me the rest of my life because you can feel the difference in that organic cotton. So I think you can afford more fashion. I, you can't, anyone can afford fashion if they want to because there are young people out there in the slow fashion movement making it available at a reasonable and affordable price. It's just that we don't need to consume so much and have it made in bad materials and it falls apart and we throw it away. The idea of throwing away clothes, I think, is our problem. And you have a particular thing about cotton. You call it the biggest polluter. The conventional cotton is the most polluting Yes, crop. It's like the fashion equivalent of industrial farming of beef, you know, like mm. all those huge mm. ranches you see with the cattle just piled up on top mm. of each other and it's nasty and filthy. Well, conventional mm. cotton is the fashion equivalent of that. Yeah, It's treated with defoliants and herbicides and pesticides mm. and the earth is just destroyed through all this chemical warfare on this plant. And it's been genetically modified to produce six times more than it should. So then it requires six times more water and six times more earth nutrients and six times everything. And why? So they can keep up with the demand of all these clothes that we don't need, that we wear an average of seven times before they're thrown away. You've got scary statistics. You said that we're about to start wanting the equivalent of 500 billion T-shirts. Yeah, crazy. It's just crazy. And you think about all the T-shirts you have and that you're given and that you, you burn through and they're sitting in your closet going on war. But organic cotton is actually the most sustainable product because, as I learned by talking to the experts and visiting cotton farms, cotton by its nature actually doesn't like water. And it doesn't mind poor soil. It's what farmers consider the last crop you plant before you start pouring compost into your land. If you can't afford to get all the compost this season, plant some cotton and buy yourself a year. Because cotton actually thrives on being stressed. And that's what forces it into bloom. The cotton ball is a bloom, like a rosebud opens up into a flower. The cotton ball is the flower of the cotton plant. And it only does that when it's stressed by being, you know, it doesn't have water and it doesn't have nutrients and it's hot. That's why we grow it in places like West Texas, you know, where <laughs> it's dry and it's hot and it's flat and the soil isn't very rich. You know, we grow it in Arizona. We grow it in you know, these far-flung, dry, desert-like places, because that's actually the climate it likes. But it's just the speeding up of that production. But because the there's been such a demand for it by fast fashion, they've manhandled the plant and are trying to control it, controlling nature, you know, what a Kelly day, and squeezing more out of it than it naturally should produce. And that harms everything, every which way. And then the other thing, of course, is the denim, which is what everyone lives in. The trouble is these cotton t-shirts and denim is what everyone's wearing around the world. That's it. That's the uniform. At any given moment of the day, half the world is wearing denim. I tell you that and you go, what? And then stand on the street corner and look the yeah, next time. for sure. For half sure. the people standing around you at least are wearing jeans. And you were talked about some factories in China where they're producing 800,000 pairs a day of a jeans. Day. We produce 6 billion pairs of jeans every year. That's a lot of jeans. The average American owns seven pairs, one for every day of the week. I don't own seven pairs. but I think Sarah Harris, the deputy editor of Vogue, owns... Probably more. 
Oh. But she lives in them. We, she, she she's lives, all, but and they're all stacked up. She did a thing on Vogue Online of all her jeans. I mean, hundreds of pairs of jeans. But she keeps them, which is a good mm. thing. Yeah. My daughter is now wearing my 80s jeans, which look really great on her. I bought these original 501s. They weren't made of organic cotton, but they were well made and they lasted. And so now my daughter wears them and they're called boyfriend jeans. I'm like, no, they're actually the original mom jeans. <laughs> and this <laughs> denim is full of all sorts of terrible toxic dyes and manufacturing it is. practices. It is. That... But there's this wonderful backlash to all of that as well. There's a, a woman I met when I was working on the book named Sarah Bellows, who at the time was the lone producer of industrial natural indigo you know, natural indigo on an industrial level in the United States, the first one in a hundred years. She's now working with Levi's. She's working with Patagonia. She's working with big companies and she's taking her industrial denim, you know, massive amounts of denim, but organically grown and, and natural, beautiful indigo. Uh, she's taking this into the industrial denim production system around the world in a project with Levi's. Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. it's, it's just going to change the denim industry. It's fantastic. Until 100 years ago, all denim was dyed with, uh, about 120 years ago, all denim was dyed with natural indigo. But then the German chemical company, BSAF, invented synthetic indigo, which is toxic in so many ways. It has aniline, it has formaldehyde, it has cyanide in it. But we thought it was a great thing 120 years ago. Progress. Like we thought plastic was. We thought plastic <laughs> was. We thought polyester was. Progress. This is progress. And it wiped out the natural indigo industry because it was more stable and you could get it 12 months of the year. And, you, you know, it, you didn't have to worry about storms wiping out your crops. Mm -hmm. And so she's now brought natural indigo back. And it's so, so beautiful. It's so superior to industrial indigo and chemical indigo. I mean, you can't, it's like a sapphire. Your mm -hmm. jeans look like a sapphire. And organic cotton with the natural indigo is just ravishing. And I think that this will, it won't dominate the denim industry, but it'll make big strides into it. And, mm -hmm. you know, if we can, she was hoping at one point to only have 1% of the industry. Well, I think now she's aiming for 10%. That's fantastic. And if we keep going, if you get to the tipping point of 27%, then chemical indigo will go away. And so whatever you do, don't chuck your jeans Don't away. chuck your jeans. And that goes to the heart of your business ethos, doesn't it, Sole, which is to keep items, keep fabric and use leftovers and don't discard them. No, absolutely. I see opportunities in problems. And uh, as a creative mind, uh, I like to work uh, on limits uh, because I find them very stimulating. So the moment I discarded this whole abundance of uh, leftover leather as a starting point. Where do you get it from, Sole? Where do you find the leather? I take it from, from Ferragamo, mm -hmm. uh, of course. Uh, but also from other brands or stockists or manufacturers. And um, it's interesting because I not only work with the offcuts, but I work with the entire skins, the so-called slow-moving stock, which are like a few skins in one peculiar finishing that it's a too much, too small quantity for a brand to be used in their, in their production, in their collection. So it sits on the shelves for either six months or a year. It depends on the policies of, that each brand has. And then after that time that it has not been moved, that's why it's called slow-moving stock, it gets either destroyed or sold to stockists. Anyway, it's not being used for the purpose and the standard and the quality it will stand. 
So this is the, the material I, I work with. And, uh, and yeah, as I said, from that instinct of uh, creating a, a necklace, uh, I, I started uh, solidifying a vision for, for Sole Studio and, uh, and my work and my pieces and creating uh, principles uh, that are now guiding uh, uh, my, my creative practice. So first of all, I wanted uh, uh, the to honor the leather. So I wanted it to be the protagonist of the jewelry. Leather was, is already used in, in jewelry, but if you look at them, most of the time it's just the frame or the support. Uh, uh, for then uh, either stones or logo or metal. In fact, at the beginning, everybody were te was telling me, you're crazy, you cannot make jewelry only with leather. Uh, you're never going to sell them. You're never going to be commercial. But um, I'm a bit uh, stubborn and I like challenges. So I, I actually, that actually reinforced my vision and uh, pushed me to create uh, jewelry that, uh, that, that have a sense of provocation and play with illusions. So you look at them and you think they're made of metal, so you imagine them to be heavy and solid and, and, um, and cold, whereas they're extremely light and soft and warm. And, and I wanted to honor this material also by creating pieces that uh, resonated with the fact that they came from a living being, so they had to have uh, an energy, a soul, they had to vibrate m movement. Uh, and that this also links to my background in architecture. So I see my uh, jewelry as an uh, organism. And this also links to why am I creating uh, something new? I'm creating something new. I'm putting into the world a new piece uh, when uh, I believe that it has uh, a reason to be there. So when every part uh, of, the, of the process and of the product has been thought of, measured, and, um, and investigated. And this uh, brings to uh, the pace, of course, because if you want to do, there's a beautiful triangle, cheap, fast, and good. You can only choose two of these. If you want to do good stuff, it cannot be too fast and it cannot be too cheap. So it's really important for me to find the right balance of how many new pieces to create and when. And, uh, and the other thing is... So you're talking that, about uh, seasons. You don't kind of launch collections. You'll just create things as and when you feel the urge to create. Yes. Now, as we are growing, we are aligning to the fashion calendar in terms of when we are presenting the collections. So I'm going to present two collections a year. But this collection, we always include also previous designs that are reinterpreted in new finishing and colors because working with leftovers, each edition is limited by nature. And uh, I design something uh, always having longevity in mind. So I think, of course, people are looking for newness and we were talking before about trends, uh, but um, I think trends are, are good. But uh, what's uh, bad about the conception of trend and what's become common is the fact that a trend is meant to last a very short time of period. But if we think of a trend in terms of in a more wider uh, understanding of it as an idea, as an aesthetic, uh, and we, we, we think with longevity in mind, uh, it's important. And that's what I always uh, uh, have in mind when I create something new. There are always uh, pieces that are born to last. Uh, and not go out of fashion when fashion changes. And it's a byproduct that would be 
created naturally anyway, as long as we eat meat, there's a byproduct. But you've seen quite a lot of leather that's now fermented out of different substances like mushrooms, haven't you, Dana? There's actually an exhibition on at St. Martin's right now showing the work of Bolt Threads, which is using mycelium, mushrooms, Mm -hmm. to Mm -hmm. make leather. Leather Leather-like material, they call it, because the leather industry, Mm -hmm. I think, cracked down on them saying it's not leather. And it's being commercialized by Stella McCartney, by Ghani out of Copenhagen. And it feels and looks just like leather because... It's been treated the same way. It's been tanned with, but using clean, clean tanning methods, and it's dyed. And you really can't tell that it's not from an animal skin. And for somebody like Selma McCartney, who has said since day one of her fashion business, I'm never using animal byproducts of any sort because she was raised a vegetarian. Mm. She, I mean, she's the talk about hippies. Her parents were the, some of the famous, most famous hippies of all time. So this is her, the way she was raised. This isn't just being a trend. This is who she is. And she said since day one, I'm not using leather and I'm not using fur. And now she's able to make shoes that are made of plant-based materials. And this is really cool for her and really great for us. Is it more expensive than leather? Real leather? No, no, it's, well, for the Mm. moment, I think she's pricing it about the same as Mm -hmm. it would be if it were Mm. leather Mm. because she's a luxury brand company, but Lululemon's managed to use it in handles for yoga mat carriers. Of course, like anything, the more it is developed, the more it is put into use, the more commercialized it is, the price will go down. I remember how much an iPhone cost when it first started Mm. and now, you know, teenagers have them. So I think that, you know, the more it becomes part of the mainstream, the more affordable it'll be. And it'll be adapted to more things, which is mm. great. I mean, mm. think of all the things. They're, they're talking to the automobile industry about using it for automobile interiors. This is enormous. Mm-hmm. And where it's interesting is that, yes, we still eat meat and we do have cowhide and, and a few other hides like that where it is a byproduct, but we need to cut back on the amount of meat that we eat. It will also be a way to replace the reptile skin industry, which is not a byproduct. Those animals are just grown to be killed. And what's more, I remember visiting the Hermes workshop and I saw these huge alligator and crocodile skins Mm, that had mm. been dyed and polished and were all set to become a Kelly bag. And the first thing they did was take a grease pencil and circle all the flaws on the skin because as they said, alligators and crocodiles are aggressive creatures. And so then they bite each other and then there's scars and just Enormous parts of this poor animal skin are just chucked away because they were seen as flawed. And when you grow the leather, there are no flaws. And no discarded bits of fabric. And, Everything and you is grow, used. And you grow to measure. You grow mm. exactly what you need and mm. not a centimeter more. So there wouldn't be any offcuts for Sole. Um, <laughs> in the 20th century, your grandfather, Salvatore Ferragamo, was Hollywood's famed go-to shoemaker, creating, you know, he created for all the big Cecil B. DeMille westerns for Greta Garbo, Mary Pickford, Jean Harlow, ballet pumps for Audrey Hepburn. But he was a great innovator of materials, using different materials, wasn't he? He might have used this new Absolutely. mushroom. Oh, he would have been super into it. He would have been so into it. <laughs> Tell Absolutely. me, what, what kind of um, materials did he um, use that was unusual at the time, Soleil? We, we can say now that he started using sustainable materials when nobody was speaking about sustainability. Why? Because he was responding with a creative mindset at the reality he was encountering. So during the the war, uh, he was not able, and and the laws that they put in Italy, he was not able to find uh, uh, good quality steel that he would use between the sole and the inner sole of the shoe. And that's when he started, uh, he thought of uh, filling up the void between the heel 
and the front of the shoe with cork, and that's how he invented the wedge, for instance. Then uh, he, he was not able to use leather, so he started experimenting with uh, the paper of uh, chocolates or of, uh, of sweet by uh, wrapping it and creating like wires and, and weavings out of it. And he used then, raffia too. Yeah, raffia or uh, nylon fishing wire. Or he started using the technique of patchwork by using offcuts of leather. So for sure, he was a, a huge innovator and for me, is an incredible inspiration for the mindset, for the approach of looking at things, uh, not uh, only from one perspective, so stopping at the problem, but uh, uh, circumnavigating the problem and looking at it from another perspective and seeing it as a, as a creative opportunity. And what did people think at the time about that, Dana? since you wrote about his life for the movie, were people thinking he was crazy, like saying to Sole, you can't make jewellery out of leather? Did they look at him at the time and say that? No, they thought it was very creative and very mm -hmm. inventive. And in fact, it was the shoe, the invisible shoe it was called, which was the one made with the fish line, the clear nylon fish line, that I think is what won him the Neiman Marcus Award. And mm -hmm. he went to Texas to receive the Neiman Marcus Award. It was seen as ingenious. Yes. Mm -hmm. And of course, you know, the wedge... The, became the platform, you know, we're still wearing platform shoes. We're, they're not made of cork anymore, alas, but we do have cork sole yeah, ones. Yeah, we do, yeah. And they're, st they're still out there. Mm -hmm. And no, he was seen as a real a real trailblazer and someone to keep an eye on and to follow. And he was, I mean, my gosh, he had so much, as the French say, he had du peps. He had so much energy. He was so, you know, always working and always trying to figure out how to improve and do what he was doing instead of just saying, this is how we're going to go and we figured it out and let's coast. He never coasted, that's for sure. And was always looking for new ways to make footwear that was comfortable, that was good for the back and the body, but also looked really good and was not wasteful. I think that had to do with growing up and you know being a businessman and, and a young businessman and coming of age during the depression mm. and then during the war. And that always did filter through in his work. But he also grew up in such poverty in, in, the, in a village outside of Naples. He got into the shoe business because his sisters needed shoes to wear to their first communion. And he was working as an apprentice for a shoemaker. And he got some little scraps of leftover scraps of leather and sat up all night making shoes. So they had shoes to wear in the church for their first communion. I mean, he was already upcycling his first pair of shoes. And just to say, that's just launched at the Venice Film Festival. And the premiere is about to be in L.A., Next so week. Next week. Will it be streamed on anything? Will, will people be, wait for the cinema for it to come in? The it will be in theatres in the United States mm -hmm. on November 4th. And mm -hmm. I'm not sure where it's going after that. Well, it's going to be fantastic. We look forward to it. And it sort of chimes. His comfort chimes with what you're doing so late. One important factor of your jewellery is that people don't feel they're wearing it and that's super comfortable. Yeah, com comfort is a very important uh, principle of uh, of my work and uh, maybe uh, actually for sure I was uh, inspired by, by him also on this. Uh, but this is also the beauty of working with, uh, with leather, for instance, because uh, it allows me to create uh, statement pieces that are important in terms of, of volumes and, and dimension, yet they're super lightweight and super practical and easy to wear because you can uh, have them on all day or bring them with you at the office and um, look good as well as feel good, which is something uh, very important for me. I, I disagree with the common say that to uh, be beautiful, you need to suffer a bit. Uh, I think that beauty is so much related with how you feel. 
So no suffering at all. And are there any other waste materials that you're thinking of working with? Any fish wire and raffia in your future? <laughs> I've started working with uh, brass shavings that uh, here in Italy they're called trutoli. And uh, this was another beautiful encounter because uh, in one of the factories where I produced the metal components of my leather jewelry, my gaze was captured by these big beams of uh, shiny, curly and sharp brass shavings, uh, which are the waste product of the last manufacturing of, of brass and of different metals. Again, as uh, most of my process started with, I started asking questions and saying, but what do you do with them? Or oh, we melt them down. And I said, ah, but can I have uh, some of them? Yeah, but you cannot work with them. They will break, they will cut, they, you cannot weld. But uh, again, uh, a bit of um, stubbornness and, uh, and then the support of incredible people that after a while they, they, they become interested in, in, in new things. I started creating my first pieces of jewelry by welding them, uh, finding the right technique to the right metal, which is tin, to, to weld them and then coating them in gold or, or palladium and then hand uh, painting them. And uh, so for now I'm focusing on leather and brass shavings in terms of leftover, but I have uh, a little collection of uh, waste of carbon fiber, waste of ceramics, uh, waste of PVC that I find uh, during my tours. So I'm not sure yet what's going to be the next step. For sure, I still have a lot to express with uh, what I'm uh, working with at the moment. Well, Dana quotes that there's 640,000 tons of fishing nets abandoned in the sea mm. so maybe fishing nets might be might be a good Absolutely. one to discover well they're very architectural themselves so for sure I, they, they would be inspiring to work with so dana in the sense of the fashion slowdown do you think this is something that people should be thinking of small brands individual artists well buying less and buying better mm. and buying mm. less buying better means going to more artisanal brands or people who mm. just work in quality. You want to produce quality, quality, not quantity. We shouldn't be mm. hoarding and, and consuming clothes like en masse. We should be thinking about shopping our own closet rather than getting a new thing, mixing things up, repairing, rewear, renting if it's a special occasion. Why go out and spend 3,000 pounds on a dress you're going to wear once if you can rent it for 300 and get something even more spectacular than you would have ever been able to afford? In one area where this has really come up is in weddings, that a lot of brides now are renting their wedding dress. I, I wore my mother's, so that one got two wears. But most get one wear. And then they're mm. put in a box in a closet, and that's that. And I've told my daughter she can take that one and cut it up and do whatever mm. she wants with it when she wants to get married because it's beautiful Duchess satin from the 1950s. Well, our old Prime Minister Boris Johnson's wife, Carrie, rented when they got yes, married. Yes, why not? And, you're, mm. and plus you're passing on some good vibes to the next person. You one hope. hopes. <laughs> one hopes. So, you know, I think that it's about supporting the young up-and-coming designers who are trying to do the right thing. It's about thinking more wisely about how you shop. You know, if you don't love it, don't buy it because it's just gonna sit in your closet unworn and then you're gonna toss it with the tag still on it. And that's wasteful on every front. I think actually this is where jewelry is so better able to live in a sustainable world mm. um, than fashion because it always has been about recycling. It's always been one of the biggest or passing down items that people have melted down, refashioned, used again or passed down. 
heirlooms mm-hmm. going around through families. But I noticed last week Zara said they're going to start going around in circles, doing a 360 degrees circularity, launching a pre-owned pilot to help clients repair, sell, recycle their clothes. Right. Well, that the in problem, London at least. The problem with that is those clothes yeah. are so poorly made to begin with that they won't ever have a very long life. They aren't built to have a long life. You know, they they remind me of sort of those small cars that were made in the 1970s during the gas crisis that were lightweight and they were made of really thin because you wanted to get as much mileage per gallon as possible. And they didn't last. Like I drive a 60 year old car. I drive a 1964 Mustang. That thing is solid. That thing is made of a steel. It, It has terrible gas mileage, but I only take it out for special occasions. But there's something far more green about having something that's 60 years old that you just keep repairing and everything I replace or repair on it is original, like the original mm. springs, the original radiator. Well, it's the same thing. That's with, a labor of love. But it's the same thing with clothes, mm. that if you buy something that's meant to last, it will last and you can repair it. If you bought something that's made so poorly that, you know, you try to repair it, it's kind of, you go like, there's no point. This this garment looks terrible now. I've washed it three times and it's lost its shape. It's lost its color. I find with some of those garments, high street garments, it's one dry clean and yeah. it's over. And if you have to dry clean it, if it costs mm. more to dry clean than it did to buy it, then why are you buying it? And of course you won't spend more to dry clean it than you did to buy it. You'll just throw it away and buy a new one. So that's like my rule of thumb. If it costs more to dry clean than it did to buy it, don't buy it. You're very down on high street brands. Not all, but the mega ones, the ones that have, you know, a thousand stores around the world or 2000 stores. And when I went to Bangladesh and saw the workers working and they lived in shanties and they were paid $868 a month to make clothes for these fast for fashion. For a 14 hour day or... A, yeah, mm-hmm. with no benefits, no vacation, no health care, no nothing, right? And they're sewing clothes like crazy for the largest company sourcing from Bangladesh. And at the time, the owner of Zara was worth $68 billion, okay? That just shows you that the system is completely off and that somebody is, you know, they're making a lot of money on the fingers of very poor people. And it's about volume and consuming and pushing and getting us implicated in impoverishing one part of the world and making a very slim portion of the population wildly, ridiculously Mm -hmm. rich. And how do you feel that glossy magazines stand now in the world? Because they are about pushing new products, about buying new things, about chucking away your wardrobe each season and getting more stuff. How do you see that role, especially as you are the sustainability editor at British Vogue? Well, it's interesting. When my book came out, one of the editors at Vogue, a really lovely woman, came up to me and said, we're all reading your book in the front row of the shows and having an existential crisis and saying, what are we doing here? And what, is, what is our mission? And should we be even doing this? And I thought it was very courageous of Edward Enumful to really take this in hand and say, listen, we're going to give you a page in the magazine every month to write about the green movement in fashion and write about whatever you want. They never tell me what to write about ever, which I think is really cool. And I'm the only one who has a page to do this, which is, you know, like a, yeah. a column in the magazine. And it's now being picked up by, you know, Vogue's all over the world. He wants to make it a pillar of British Vogue as he has with inclusivity and diversity, mm. which it should be because it's the all... The next thing that he's going to tackle. It, it is Cultural a, change. It is a, it is a tripod. Mm. You can't have mm. inclusivity and diversity without being aware of planet and humanity. It's all together. What it's doing is it's looking through putting out a magazine through a different lens 
a green lens in a sense where you're just think, having a think. And that's what I always write in my column, having a think. Should we be pushing this if it's not 100% green? Well, maybe, maybe not. But if there's a brand, that, a, a beauty brand that's doing clean beauty or using recycled materials for their packaging, let's talk about it. Let's give people options. And I think that's the beauty. And that's the mission now of the glossy magazines. It's not just about selling stuff. It's about giving you options. Here's a way to do it in a more informed mm. way. Mm. And here are some options that are greener. And it's also pushing the advertisers and consumer pressure to adopt more green practices. Mm. You know, mm. if Vogue is becoming the green glossy in a sense, then you got to sort of, if you're an advertiser, trickle you trickle down to everybody. You got to, yeah. you got to get, you got to get on, mm. you got to get with our message and, yeah. and talk about your, and you'll want to, and talk about your green efforts and your new green products. And I think it's consumer demand more than anything that would change. And legislation. Yeah. Now, along with the sustainability and waste products, technology does play a role, doesn't it? We'll have 3D printing in clothes garments soon. We already do. Mm. We mm. already do. Iris Van Herpen does this, mm. and Philip Tracy's been 3D printing really cool headpieces. Going forward, it looks like you know we'll be able to order something from Amazon and print it at home. I don't know if that'll ever happen, but look, here we are doing Zooms and, not, and talking to each other on screens and driverless cars, and driverless cars, all these mm-hmm. different things. So maybe we will be able to get to that point. But I think we'll never lose the demand, the need to make things with our hands, the craftsmanship, the haute couture, the one-of-a-kind beautiful wedding dress. It's all hand embroidered and with, you know, beautiful beadwork. I think that it's in our nature to work with our hands. Actually, the more tech we swing in one direction, the more we return to working with our hands and others, whether it's hobbies or it's, you know, revering craftsmanship, the return of, you know, making furniture by hand and and making mm. clothing by hand and jewelry mm. by hand, that there's, we will always have that balance, the yin and the yang. Because it means something, and it's it's a story. It's um, something, as you say, you keep, and it's filled with that sort of human endeavor, which means yeah. something. It's but in I our nature to, since, since the dawn of mankind. I wanted to know what you thought about the recent Paris runway show of Copernic when Bella Hadid no. came on wearing nothing and was aerosol sprayed with this sort of mix of polymers and synthetic fibers into a sort of non-woven fabric and then walk down the runway. Talk about a tone-deaf moment. And I know those kids, I call them kids because they're half my age. I know those kids, I wrote about them when they were at Courage, and I just wanted to go like, hello, what year do you live in? This was the most not modern thing I've seen in a fashion, anything in a really long time. Because first, of course, it was made of, like you said, polymers and all this other completely toxic materials that will not biodegrade and when dumped into landfill will poison the soil and the water table. But on top of it, it was a one-off dress. How does she get out of that dress? They cut her out of it. And when they cut her out of it, it goes in the trash. It was like the ultimate in fast fashion. You want to dress now? Let's spray it on you. You can wear it for as long as you want. Then we cut it off and you throw it away. I was like, no. <laughs> it's a, fashion should be thinking exactly the opposite right now. And that these kids got such huge applause and traction from this. And everyone thought it was fantastic. The only thing that was fantastic about it was Bella Hadid's 
body. Okay? The rest <laughs> of she'd it look was good in anything. Whatever they put her in, she It was an environmental <laughs> horror. And that they got kudos for it just like made me take to bed. So I want to finally ask you both what we should be doing. What's your one thing you think, Sole, we should change when we shop? Ask questions. First to yourself, what we were saying before. Do I really love this piece? Does it bring me joy? Do I need it? It's a more of a tricky question, but at least how many times am I going to wear it? And then ask questions to the brand or the designer you're buying from. So who made it? How was it made it? In which conditions? What materials? How long is it going to last? For me, it's really about asking questions and then finding the answers and then make a, a more uh, conscious choice in anything we do. Dana? Yeah, definitely. There was the same editor who told me that okay. they were having an existential crisis when my book came out, uh, said that she has a rule that if you're e-shopping and you like something and you think you really love it and you want to buy it, put the little click on the heart, go away for a week, come back to the website. And if you still think you need to have that piece, then buy it. Resist the impulse buy, what do they call the, the thrill at the till. Mm -hmm. Resist it because... You know, often it is what the French call a faux achat, where you're buying something and then you're never wearing it or you wear it once and you're like, you know what, it's not really me. And then do things like swap with your friends. I see my daughter doing that with her friends all the time. I mean, she walks in the room with a new shirt. I'm like, where'd you get that? She's oh, it was, it was, you know, Gina's, but I'm wearing it now. I'm like, suits you. Good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I gave her this instead. I'm like, Great. Keep the clothes in circulation, whether it's putting them in consignment on a, on a website like Depop or Vestiaire Collective or even eBay or taking them to a place to get them repaired or learning a bit of needlework yourself and repairing them or swapping with friends. But keep clothes in circulation. Resist the impulse to buy, you know, the thrill at the till and give yourself time to think and say, do I love it? And then make sure it has a second, third and fourth life. So we've all got to think of what it means to wear something that you can feel good about. I it's not love. just looking good, it's feeling good. Loving it. Don't, just mm. you know, We need to return to cherishing our clothes mm. like we cherish everything else. I was speaking to somebody today and she said, you know, people complain they can't afford good clothes, but in fact, they can't afford good clothes. And when you invest in good clothes, you don't throw them away because you're like, I spent too much money on that to throw it in the mm. bin. That if you didn't invest in it, you just paid you know, 15 quid for it or whatever. You're like, well, I only paid 15 quid for it and you toss it. Mm. I stopped losing my glasses when I started paying a lot of money for glasses. You know, how many pairs of sunglasses did I lose that were the cheapos that cost 10 bucks? I lost them all the time. But when I spent $400 on a pair of sunglasses, well, I've been wearing them for 20 years. So, you know, when you invest in something, you take care of it. Mm. And you appreciate it, you cherish it, and you respect it. And it should be like that in anything in your life, including fashion. Thank you so much for um, joining me, Sole, from Milan. Well, thank you, Carol. It was a pleasure. seeing the next materials that come, come our way out of your studio. Me too. And where can everybody see your work, Sole? Actually, there's a, something beautiful happening soon. We're going to open our first store ever here in Milan, which is going to be a very special space. So there, it's at the Portrait Hotel inside of the, of the square. And then we'll hear more from you on the Green Dream. The Green Dream with Dana Thomas. Mm. And make sure mm. you follow that one and not the Green Dream in Australia that's about money. Okay. Yeah, no, Green we don't Dream with Dana that. Thomas, wherever you get your <laughs> podcasts or on Instagram at Dana Thomas Paris. Because even if I ever move, Paris is a state of mind. <laughs> 
Dana, thanks so much for dropping in on your way from Paris to Venice. That's it. <laughs> for a sustainability conference run by the Camera Nazionale. Uh-huh. So we're going to go talk and figure out some solutions to the sustainability crisis in one of the world's most oldest and vulnerable cities in the world. Well, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening. For more information about this and other episodes of If Jules Could Talk, please go to our website, carolwilton.com slash podcasts. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast feed and share the love. Share it any way you can. And there's nothing we like more than a rating or a comment and even a star. Special thanks to the producer, Natasha Cowan, editor, Tim Thornton, and our sponsors, Fooly Gemstones. To find out more about them, look up fooleygemstones.com. And please join us again in two weeks for the next Jeweled Nugget, when I'll be posing the question what to King Tutankhamun, Julius Caesar, Cardi B, a pirate and Mark Jacobs have in common. Yep, you guessed it. It's ear piercings. I'm going to be investigating ear curation and styling. Yes, it is a proper thing. And it always has been, turns out. Ear piercing goes back 5,000 years. So we're going to look at the history, the fashions, who does it best. And I'll be talking with pioneers of the new piercing fashions on both sides of the Atlantic. So please join me then. Goodbye. If Jules Could Talk with Carol Wilton is produced by Natasha Cowan. Music and editing by Tim Thornton. Graphics by Scott Bentley. Illustration by Geordie Labanda. And you can find me on Instagram at Carol Walton. Carol Walton.